0: I am simply now going to invite my colleague, uh, Professor Linda Evans, from the School of Education at Leeds University to introduce our keynote this morning to you. Uh, Linda is uh, a member of council and also convener of our International Research and Researchers Network, which has taken off brilliantly under her leadership, so she makes an ideal chair for this session. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, Helen. I first
1: met our keynote speaker, Georg, two years ago in September 2010. Um, I was one of the speakers at an international workshop on uh, higher education management, the professionalization of higher education management that uh, Georg had organized. And the workshop was held at the German Research Institute for Public Administration in Speyer, where at the time, Georg held the chair for scientific organization, higher education, and science management. And the workshop was a wonderful event. It was well organized with Germanic precision. Um, It was intellectually stimulating, wonderful company. And this was my first visit to Germany, and Georg was an excellent host. On the first evening, he took all the speakers to a restaurant that was renowned for its very fine German wines. Um, and it was there that I discovered that he is actually a wine connoisseur. In fact, in his spare time, I was told, he actually teaches classes on wine appreciation and wine tasting. When I met Georg a few months later, uh, a few months ago, in Berlin, at a conference that marked Ulrich Teichler's 70th birthday, uh, Georg had moved jobs by then. He had, in fact, taken over Ulrich's directorship of the International Centre for Higher Education Research at Kassel, what we know as Incha CASEL, where he is Professor of Higher Education. Now, this is Georg's first visit to SRH conference. I do hope it won't be his last. In fact, I, I look forward to developing links with Incha CASEL and the International Research and Researchers Network. Georg is internationally recognised for his research into higher education and many of you will know his work. He has been visiting professor at Sciences Po and a visiting scholar at Stanford University. He's the author of three monographs, seven edited books, and numerous peer-reviewed journal articles. Today, we're going to hear him talk about empowering universities, contemporary transformations, and unintended outcomes. Georg, uh, I fear that... You may find yourself as a wine connoisseur rather disappointed this evening uh, by the the, the wine that you have at the conference dinner. I don't think it will be quite what you're used to. Uh, It might uh, might be a little bit disappointing, but I hope one thing that doesn't disappoint you is the welcome that you've received here at the SRHE conference. We're absolutely delighted to have you. Colleagues, please join me in welcoming Professor Georg Kuchen.
2: Okay, So, I, okay, I'm, I'm already there. Well, thank you so much, Linda, for these uh, kind words. Uh, I enjoyed the wine here very much, both yesterday and the night before. We have a wonderful wine list here uh, in our resort. Thanks to Helen, uh, who brought me here and who also brought me to these uh, restaurants. And uh, well, I hope I will live up to your expectations uh, with my keynote speech. Right now. Uh, When I was asked whether I would like to uh, deliver a keynote speech uh, for this conference, I was hesitant uh, a little bit because uh, I was wondering whether I would be the right person to address, uh, 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 like the motto is, uh, shared and contested ambitions in higher education. Uh, But I thought I have a take on that uh, which might fit in nicely because I won't talk so much about the changing ambitions, but instead rather uh, on the changing means of how to achieve these goals or, and ambitions. And let's say my main story here is that we see more and more increasingly higher education as something to be managed, the university also as a managed organisation, and this obviously has some impacts and I will tell you that these impacts are sometimes not the intended one. You, they produce a lot of unintended consequences for both higher education organisations and societies. So this is kind of my general uh, uh, line here. Um, what I would like to do um, is to, uh, uh, to, to focus first on, let's say, broader transnational trends in higher education. In society, governance and organization and I will particularly focus on the organizational level, the empowerment of the organization because I think this is something very uh, uh, salient uh, uh, over the last years in very different national settings. I briefly come then to the question what does this imply for the management of higher education and in the second part I will with some examples from my German context Uh, show what unintended consequences might result from the idea that the three missions of the universities uh, can be uh, managed directly and in the end I will come up with some uh, uh, research perspective, both theoretical and comparative. So uh, if if we take a look at the kind of contemporary transformations, uh, obviously there are many different stories, but my stories are rather that we see at the macro level a kind of increasing inclusion. Uh, in higher education we see new forms of university governance, and at the organizational level we see the universities increasingly as organizational actors. Let me start with the first kind of general transnational trends. Um, uh, and I think inclusion is at least one threat to to uh, uh, to use in order to make sense of changes or uh, uh, transformations in higher education. There are obviously other ones uh, one could have started also with kind of uh, changing technological conditions or changing economic conditions. I thought inclusion might perhaps be uh, uh, a better starting point because as compared especially to changing technological conditions this is a kind of long-term historical and sociological trend we can witness. So obviously there a kind of ever-increasing inclusion of persons into uh, higher education into the university system uh, just to show you uh, uh, some some figures from from colleagues of mine from the United States uh, John Meyer and Evan Schoffer, uh, uh on the tertiary enrollment uh, per capita per 10,000 capita regional averages. Regional means here regional in terms of a globalized uh, or world society. And you can see that apart perhaps from uh, sub-Saharan Africa, there's a kind of rapid increase in higher education in tertiary uh, enrollment uh, uh, after, especially after 1945. Then the second wave was kind of the opening of the higher education systems in the early 70s and what they cannot um, uh, describe here, because the uh, data only go until 2000, what has happened in the last uh, uh, t- 10 to 12 years. Because the last 10 to 12 years, they, 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 we can witness another expansion of higher education and another uh, uh, and more stronger inclusion of persons into the system. Uh, just to mention one, i uh, uh, give you one example from, from my country, from Germany. Uh, when 10 or 12 years ago the OECD came up with this 40% benchmark, 40% students uh, uh, of of one age cohort being higher education students, Uh, nobody could believe that. Nobody could believe that. For some, it was a kind of utopia. For perhaps more traditional professors, it was a kind of dystopia. But nobody could believe 40% um, enrollment rate in Germany. This was impossible. We are now at 53%. So, it it really accelerated over the last years, and if you take a more historical perspective, I think it is remarkable the kind of equal uh, uh, ratio of uh, female and male students in higher education. If you take the long history of universities into account, it's a process which started in the uh, late 19th century. Again, if you take the long history, um, it's a remarkable uh, uh, story that we now in all OECD countries have Men and women basically on an equal par in higher education. It is also, we see also obviously a stronger inclusion with regard to social class, but here uh, the inclusion is certainly uh, not as uh, strongly, not as perhaps egalitarian as with regard to uh, to gender issues. In Germany, for example, the probability uh, to go uh, to uh, university is five times higher. If one of your parents has a university degree, so there is still strong inequality uh, uh, with social uh, concerning social class, but nevertheless, we see a strong trend of inclusion, and uh, uh, I, one, one might think of Martin Trow's uh, a, a book or a book which was edited uh, um, uh, after, uh, lately, um, uh, which was called uh, "High Education from Elite to Mass to Universal High Education." Correspondingly. Uh, we see an increase of subject of study, which this is also remarkable because a traditional university only had four subjects. Nowadays we have hundreds of subjects, even at individual universities, they offer hundreds of uh, courses. This has to do in Europe with the Bologna process, because the Bologna process opened up a variety of Bachelor and Master courses. Before I came here in the tram in Hamburg, I saw a BA in Coffee Management. Uh, You might get a university degree on coffee management nowadays, Uh, but uh, I think again it's a kind of long-term historical trend of the academization of society. It started uh, with the inclusion, for example, of engineering in the late 19th century in the university studies, um, also business studies, journalism. They were all included uh, kind of late 19th century, early 20th century, and more recently we have Uh, for example the whole health sector is becoming uh, something that apart from medicine, uh, uh, that was always there, but apart from medicine uh, also the kind of health professionals are increasingly part of the higher education of the university system. So, and a third thing uh, in which we find a strong trend towards inclusion is uh, concerning the missions of university. Uh, The traditional missions of universities, and here I would limit myself especially to research universities, is going back to the von Humboldtian uh, Humboldtian, uh, ideal uh, roughly 200 years ago, namely doing teaching and research, or research and teaching. And so these are the twin missions of the research universities, which became the twin missions uh, uh, basically in all research universities uh, in the world. And it's interesting that with research and teaching, the, the link to society And economy for me is part of society obviously, Uh, the link to society is indirect. We educate, we do research, but whether this will benefit or not society at large or the economy in particular is something we can sort out only afterwards. And therefore uh, something came in which was called a third academic mission, that means direct links to society and the economy, uh, while Research and teaching traditional were indirect uh, contributions, indirect uh, missions to be accomplished. But also other uh, missions uh, came up over the last years. Uh, For example, in Germany, and I know it also in Sweden or in the United States, many universities are spearheading a trend towards sustainable development. Uh, uh, you, You can see many more missions coming up what universities are supposed to do instead of the kind of traditional twin mission of doing teaching and uh, uh, teaching or education and research. Uh, So let me now come to the governance level. I make it very brief uh, The role and again this is a transnational trend. Here I focus in particular on on, uh, uh, Europe because Europeanization is a process to take place in Europe but the other the other processes take place also in other uh, uh, continents and other contexts. The role of the state certainly is changing. I won't agree with my colleagues who say the change is as uh, the state is losing an importance. I think we can certainly not say this for most national systems. but the role is changing. It's more kind of an indirect steering through evaluations, through uh, performance-based uh, measurements and so on. We have an increase of actors Uh, university boards, accreditation and evaluation agencies, but also uh, the media play a stronger role, business plays a stronger role uh, and so on and so on. Europeanization and competition, Europeanization obviously at the European level, Uh, interestingly uh, the European with regard to the educational side of higher education came later as compared to the research side. So there were always European research policies already going back to the 1950s and 60s. With regard to the educational side, this came later. And obviously uh, competition is also kind of, uh, uh, seeing competition as a kind of governance mechanism is something uh, uh, relatively Uh, uh, new in higher education, though, as we all know as academics, uh, the academic field is a highly competitive one. Uh, So now I would like to come to the third um, uh, level of changes. I first started with societies and briefly governance and now the organization because this is uh, uh, the level of change I would like to focus uh, in particular on also in the second part of the presentation when I give you some examples from Uh, the German case. Uh, Briefly, I think everybody knows this, but I would like to briefly go through it, the traditional view of the university as an organisation is very different from what we know from other organisations, be it business organisations or public administrations. Um, We have traditionally uh, a strong role of the academic profession and the state. The the organisational structure is internally fragmented, and that's why uh, American researchers coined it, uh, or American Swedish researchers coined it, uh, organised anarchies already in the uh, 1970s, and there is a relatively limited role of leadership in higher education due to the strong role of the academic profession and the state and the internal fragmentation of the entity. Uh, Against this backdrop, I think we can see Um, a change in the perception of what a university as an organization is, and I think here the term empowerment makes a lot of sense, because a university as an organization uh, is uh, uh, going to be empowered. Uh, It is less a kind of loosely coupled systems uh, ideal. It is is an idea where leadership and hierarchies play a stronger role, uh, both kind of at the central level and at the decentral level through deans, for example. Uh, Accountability in academia is traditionally an individualized um, account. Uh, as an academic, I'm typically accountable for my individual achievements, but nowadays my individual achievements are seen as part of what the organization is doing, uh, which, is, uh, uh, which, which is a certain change in uh, uh, attitude towards the relation between academics and the organizational environment. Uh, third, uh, universities increasingly uh, formulate specific organizational goals and missions. And this is, again, this is a relatively, I, I supervise the PhD thesis on mission statements on, in German universities, that's a relatively recent phenomenon uh, because traditionally the university, in a sociological sense, it's an institution. An institution in a sociological sense is something you do not reflect on. You just act upon, it is taken for granted. It is taken for granted what the university does, namely, research and teaching. Nowadays you have to be more precise, you have to be more specific. You cannot say we're a university and everybody knows what it is, an entity where you do research and teaching, but you have to formulate more specific organizational goals and missions. Related to that is that we see in the universities nowadays a much more differentiated and a much more elaborate formal structure, especially formal administrative structure. Uh, this again, uh, uh, these are trends which uh, uh, are kind of transnational or to be observed at a global level. And here I would like to give an example from a PhD thesis uh, by Daniel Locke from uh, um, uh, Oxford University. And uh, she organised organisational charts, which is a very interesting phenomenon to, to, um, to, uh, to, to analyse organisational charts and to see how organisational changes Are reflected in the organizational charts. According to Daniel Locke, um, in 1920 at Oxford University uh, there was only one administrative position, namely the accountant. That was, according to her analysis, and she got all the material, that was the only kind of legitimate administrative position. Nowadays you have 16 units with diverse subunits. You have units like estates directorate, uh, personal services, uh, uh, occupational health services, and so on and so on, which make it very clear that uh, that we, we are moving towards a very, very differentiated and elaborate formal structures in university. And related to that is, and, and uh, but I shouldn't talk that much about it because there are a lot of people who have done research on that, Celia Richards and others who are here, I guess, Uh, uh, on university management as a profession, because university management is, again, seen as a profession. So the question now is, what does this imply for the management of higher education? And uh, here I would like to take, again, a more kind of historical and comparative uh, perspective. I I think there are important parallels, but also differences to early industrial management. If you go back to the history of early industrial management, um, for example, uh, the volume by Alfred D. Chandler, or the two major volumes by Alfred D. Chandler on U.S. industry, but there are similar uh, uh, works on uh, uh, European business and Japanese business, they show, uh, kind of consistently, that between the kind of mid 19th century and early 20th century, we had a growth. In, the, in, in industrial firms, and an increasing complexity of industrial firms. so and, and this led, so to say, to a split between the owners and the managers. The managerial role came up because uh, the firms were so big and the environments, the internal and external environments of these firms was, became so complex that the owners could no longer manage, manage their business, and so uh, a whole new field emerged, namely the field of managers. And I think there's an interesting parallel uh, here with regard to what we can witness in higher education over the last, uh, let's say, roughly two decades, because we have a system dynamics which also leads to more higher education management. The system dynamics is, I think, rather similar. We have an g- increasing complexity, both the internal complexity and the external complexity of the organisation is increasing, and this leads to an increase in higher education management. Think about the increasing uncertainties, but also opportunities for funding. Think about the diversity of the student body, and so on and so on. Internationalization. This is a kind of system dynamics embedded in kind of broader societal trends, which leads to higher education management. And I would like to give you, uh, but, but they are similar, uh, I'm, I'm sure there are similar uh, results from other countries. Just from, from Germany, we conducted uh, some research. Uh, uh, and we ask the heads of the university administration in what areas within your university administration have new full-time positions for administrative personnel and new organizational units been established during the last five or ten years and we can see especially over the last five years uh, we have much more full-time positions for administrative personnel and much more new organizational units. Uh, Think about the whole area of student services but also rather new areas Quality assurance of teaching, this was something that was not existent when I was a student, quality assurance of teaching. Uh, public relations, one of the big winners. Uh, research management, also something that is relatively new, that we have units for research management. And what is also interesting, uh, the president's office is also getting bigger and bigger and more important over time. Uh, So here I think there are the the, the parallels to kind of early industrial management with regard to what happens in higher education and concerning higher education management. Uh, What I see as a difference, we might discuss it anyhow, is that universities are professional organisations. That means universities, in universities, specific and complex labour processes are carried out. That means the labour processes, and the labour processes are obviously teaching and research, are different from the kind of more standardized, mechanical, simple labour processes in um, uh, business firms. Correspondingly, the role of the, worker is, the workers, especially the role of the professoriate, is, uh, is a different one. The status is much higher and the distribution of power within a university is also different. Uh, the, as I said, especially the professoriate has the professoriate which carries out Uh, or at least big parts of these kind of complex and specific labour processes have a much higher status in the university and therefore the distribution of power is different from the distribution of power in industrial firm where kind of the new managers take over, as I will show you later, the new higher education managers uh, have only a very limited power base as compared uh, to uh, uh, academics. And so, this is kind of the the broader story, and I would like now to focus on uh, three examples from the German case, uh, three examples on the three missions, namely the mission of uh, research, and I would like to focus briefly on uh, uh, attempts to uh, foster research excellence at German university. Secondly, the mission of teaching, and I would like to focus on what happens to quality management in teaching, And thirdly, the third academic mission, here as exemplified through technology transfer. And I will show you with all these three examples that we have a a kind of more managed ideal. I don't know whether I have it, but let's say in the broad environment there is this uh, ideal of a more managed organization which leads to kind of unintended consequences we might reflect on. So let me start off... uh, uh, with the first example, which is on research, unintended consequences of empowerment, uh, I would like to take the uh, German Excellence Initiative as an example. Maybe some of you have heard of it. Uh, it's uh, more than 2.6 billion euro uh, are, uh, spent on different initiatives uh, by universities, it's uh, federal money and it's state money. We have a federal system, so uh, it took a long time till, let's say the federal state and the individual states could agree on that. But more than 2.6 billion euros are put into the universities in order to strengthen high quality research at German universities. This is done according uh, uh, following three lines. Uh, so to say the lowest line is uh, uh, um, uh, graduate programs. PhD programs, then you have research clusters, and the third line is that also individual universities are promoted as universities which are particularly strong uh, when it comes to research excellence. Um, uh, By the way, the way the uh, the, the, the whole initiative is phrased uh, is uh, following a kind of traditional science push model. It is not driven, let's say, by economic competitiveness, and business has nothing to say in these kind of uh, uh, evaluation processes. It is more a science push model. The idea, obviously, there is some economic rationale behind it, but the idea is we have to invest hugely into science and research in order to gain, let's say, economic and societal benefits later, uh, uh, because basic research at a a high level is important for the economy. What is interesting is that we can see, and there's an uh, analysis by Richard Münch, um, that we can see with this excellence initiative, we see the strengthening of the authority of disciplinary elites. Because the disciplinary elites, they do the peer review. They uh, basically distribute the money, or they make proposals on how to distribute the money. Um, There's a, a rather contested analysis by Richard Münch in Germany. Uh, I think there are parallels to the research assessment exercise. I recently read a paper by Ben Martin and Richard Whitley. Ben Martin is, uh, as, as a former director of SPRU, and, and Richard Whitley from Manchester Business School. they are not, uh, uh, let's say, they are not against evaluations in principle, not at all, but they are very critical also about the research assessment exercise, saying this leads to a strengthening of the authority of disciplinary elites, and with the Excellence Initiative, I would like to Uh, talk about uh, we have a similar tendency in the German context. What we also can see is that with the excellence initiative as uh, uh, management is getting ever more important and uh, you can only be successful in the excellence initiative if you have Uh, uh, relatively good management capabilities. A kind of loosely structured academic uh, network won't help. You need strong management uh, uh, capabilities and and, and facilities, and what we can see here is that we can see a growth of the research units. The money is typically given to larger research units, and uh, this could lead to um, a very, let's say, uh, uh, a very critical effects uh, because on the one hand, and I quote here this wonderful historical and sociological work by J. Rogers Hollingsworth, an American uh, who worked on biomedical research and a younger colleague of mine, uh, Thomas Heinze, and, uh, and they can clearly show uh, that the, the productivity but also the creativity uh, goes down if the research groups Are getting larger. So there's a premium for larger groups, but the kind of more productive unit and, and the more creative units are the smaller ones. And so one might hypothesize, as an unintended consequence, that both, namely the strengthening of the authority of disciplinary elites and the growth of research units, might have a critical effect on the creativity and innovation in research. If you know a little bit about, uh, let's say, history and philosophy of science, Thomas Kuhn and others, it is very obvious that uh, some ideas which are not developed within a dominant paradigm represented by scientific or disciplinary elites will have a harder time as compared, let's say, to high-class but mainstream research. Another unintended effect is that we see increasing tensions between research and teaching orientations, between and within our universities. It might be an intended effect to see this difference, this increasing gap between more research oriented universities and more teaching universities. Uh, this might be intended, the kind of stratification in the system, but it is certainly not intended that we see that within universities. So a lot of professors who are involved in the Excellence Initiative, they only have a teaching load of two to four hours, while the traditional professor, by law in Germany, has eight to nine hours. And so this creates a lot of strains within departments and within uh, universities, I guess strains uh, that were typically not intended when uh, 2.6 billion euro were spent to foster high-class research. And the last perhaps not unintended consequences that we can see and we might debate it. I find it quite positive, some of my colleagues find it critical, that we can see a strengthening of practices of collective competitiveness among academics. I think this is particularly true for people like me in the social sciences or people in the humanities. In the natural sciences and in engineering, uh, there was already, in in many fields, already a sense of collective competitiveness, while we were more seen as kind of uh, individual monads. And nowadays, uh, uh, if you want to create a research cluster, for example, in the social sciences, you have to learn collective competitiveness. And collective competitiveness is is not something anthropologically given. It has to be learned. It's a learned process. So we are learning these kind of collective competitiveness. Let me come to my second example of unintended, and here I would rather focus on indirect consequences of the empowerment of the university as a managed organisation. And here I would like to focus on teaching. I would like to use the growth of quality management units in Germany as an example. As I have uh, shown you before with a slide when we interviewed the heads of the administration, there was a strong growth of quality management units uh, uh, in, Germany over, in German universities over the last years. And it is a nice example uh, for, let's say, my kind of broader story, that we can see a transformation of the universities from a loosely coupled organizational structure to a more strategic and integrated organization, because quality management links these different parts and actors within the university. But the direct influence on the teachers, on the teaching of professors uh, uh, they can exercise is very, very limited, and it is also very limited, and this is a kind of interesting variable one should take into account when you do international comparisons, it is also limited by the Constitution. In Germany, freedom of research and teaching is part of our Constitution. It is a basic right in the Constitution. And as a constitutional court is composed of uh, high-class legal scholars, uh, university professors, all of them, uh, you can be sure that they will certainly defend this basic constitutional rights of uh, university professors and other researchers and teachers in academia. Uh, So, the power they can exercise is only intermediated through university leadership and deans. They don't Uh, They hardly have any kind of direct contacts to uh, those who are teaching in academia, but they could exercise some influence through university leadership and deans, typically by the provision of information, but not by the decision making itself. That's also interesting because in sociology we define power as the uh, capacity to make collectively binding decisions, which includes also non-decisions. They don't typically don't have the capacity to make collectively binding decisions. You can provide information, which might be a form of soft power, I don't know, but the decision-making rests with others, namely with university leadership and deans. And uh, this is Very different from what a manager uh, can do in an industrial firm, obviously, because management has to do with collective decision-making. Here you can prepare a decision but not carry out the actual uh, decision itself. Uh, Here come uh, different perceptions of university leadership uh, come into play, and we have a research project on that, and there are others, uh, Linda for example, uh, who also work on, on these issues like different perceptions of university leadership. Uh, obviously the influence of uh, the quality managers uh, varies whether uh, uh, you have a, a perception of the university president or the vice president as being a first among equals, that is uh, the major commitment is to the academic community, Here you are first among equals, or whether you see yourself as a top level of a managerial decision-making system. We have interview data and uh, there's a huge variance, there's a huge variance you have Uh, university directors who see them more as part of the academic community, who take it as a kind of part-time job to become a university president, and others who see themselves more as a top level of a managerial decision-making system. By the way, we correlated these data with success in the Excellence Initiative and we didn't find any any kind of clear relations. Uh, We have uh, 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 universities which are doing very, very well in the Excellence Initiative following the first model, and we have uh, universities which are doing very, very well in the Excellence Initiative following the second model. Okay, I now come to my third and last point concerning unintended consequences of empowerment of the way how uh, the missions and the visions of what a university uh, uh, is carried out. Uh, I would like to come to what is called a third mission, namely the kind of direct links to uh, society in general and to the economy in particular. Uh, I would like to focus on technology transfer at German universities as an example. I have done some research on that. And, uh, and I think it is, a, it's, again, it's embedded in a kind of broader global trend Because technology transfer, and there are a lot of studies on that, uh, in, in very, very different national systems is increasingly seen as an organizational responsibility and no longer as something that is mainly a voluntary individual activity. Uh, the OECD obviously is always, as always, uh, uh, as usual, uh, um, instrumental in this regard. But you shouldn't underestimate also the power of academics, for example, social scientists, also here in the UK, in fostering this idea that technology transfer is becoming a third academic mission. Um, and. Uh, Again, if we go back to Germany, we can see there is a lot, historically, there has been a lot of voluntary individual activity, a lot of direct links between university professors and industry. The spectacular growth of the German pharmaceutical industry and the German chemical industry at the end of the 19th century cannot cannot be explained without taking into account these kind of informal contacts uh, between uh, uh, academia and industry. But again, what is interesting now, it is seen more as an organizational responsibility, and increasingly technology transfer units, uh, organizational units at the university level are being set up. This might have unintended and problematic consequences for academic research. I'm referring here, uh, not to quote uh, sociologists all the time, Uh, the first couple are uh, economists, uh, the latter is, um, is a philosopher of science, and also, from, from an economic point of view, it might, be, it might result in unintended consequences, because the basic function in the overall innovation system of university is to provide basic, open research, which can be utilized by everybody. And there are a lot of concerns about uh, a serious econom- uh, economists like Mori and Semper, for example, who say it might dry out and it might be detrimental to the kind of industrial competitiveness or national competitiveness here of the USA if more and more uh, uh, of this research is done uh, kind of uh, at the interface between university and industry, if we have an increase in patents, if uh, university researchers are distracted from basic research because that's what they are best at and in several fields you still need a heavy dose of basic research in order to carry out basic innovations. Um, What we could see, uh, from again from the German context, is the intention was, uh, uh, there was a bill in um, uh, 2002 uh, that shifted the right to patenting of innovations from professors to the university. That means from the individual to the organization. And the idea was, if the organization is responsible for patenting, we will have a sharp increase in patenting, because the university will set up uh, units which can deal professionally with that, and the university has an incentive, an economic incentives, incentive in patenting. What we, what we could see, at least in the first years when we did these studies, was a decrease, but not an increase, in academic patenting, because professors, they completely lost interest, also economic interest, in patenting, because, as I said, the right, Uh, to patenting, the title shifted to the university level from the individual level so the professors lost interest and the university could not come up with kind of structures which allowed for a kind of quick uh, uh, review and patenting process. So we could see a decrease but not an increase of patenting. What we could also see, uh, kind of unexpectedly and unintendedly, that the cooperation patterns, which were by and large informal, did not change that much. Uh, technology transfer offices could not alter this kind of robust structure of personalized interactions between industry and academia. This has to do with trust, because academics don't trust industry, but they they trust a concrete individual in industry, and industry does not, or uh, uh, someone from industry does not trust the university, but he or she trusts a specific researcher in Uh, in the university. So, the role of trust uh, is very much in favor of personalized and not intermediated interactions and also the heavy load of tacit knowledge. Uh, To quote Michael Polanyi here, the heavy load of tacit knowledge and scientific research also makes direct interactions much more favorable instead of intermediated interactions uh, which are carried out by an office. I would like to give you some quotes from the field. Uh, again, we are talking here about the field of technology transfer. Uh, we are not talking about daycare for little children or so uh, and if you If you take these quotes into account, you see the kind of heavy, heavily personalized uh, factors uh, there 's a strong personal factor involved, like what is important for transfer, chemistry between two persons to like someone, good feelings to be on the same wavelength, understanding each other as human beings or Here is the least common denominator, either you get along or you don't. Again, we are talking here about uh, technology transfer by statements by mostly uh, male agents here. Um, So we see unexpectedly and unintendedly a persistence of informal corporations pattern which could not be altered by the construction of transfer offices. There are rough estimates that more than 90% of all transfer activities are still carried out through kind of individual personalized interactions and not being mediated through the organization. So one might ask the question whether uh, technology transfer offices might rather be instead of an indicator for strong organisational change of the university, perhaps being an indicator for organisational persistence because, as I said, uh, the practices did not change that much through the creation of transfer offices, And in organizational sociology, we would call it a loose coupling between the formal structure and the activity structure of an an organization. It is only loosely coupled. The formal structure, namely the creation of an office, office is something which you do, especially uh, vis-a-vis your environment, to say, we take it seriously, because it was a strong political uh, demand for that. We take it seriously, but the activity structure did not change that much. And we might also think about other management units uh, in higher education, which might also be only uh, uh, which might also exemplify the kind of loose coupling between the formal and the activity structure of an organization. So let me come to the end. So I have kind of two sets of perspectives, theoretical perspectives and comparative perspectives. Um, so the first set is on higher education in society. I was here mainly focusing on the empowerment, of the university as an organizational actor, that is, at the organizational level, level, but obviously you could think also broader what does it mean for higher education in society. Despite some criticism and some kind of gloomy outlooks, and uh, I heard the term crisis and catastrophe quite often here, I think the university, also at a societal level, is a success story. Is a success story. Uh, there were, in the 1970s, there were a lot of complaints about over-education. Nobody, nowadays, nobody talks any longer about over-education. We need more higher education. So there is a kind of general uh, 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 trend towards more higher education, towards more universities, obviously in different forms and with different formats. But historically, I would rather see higher education in society as a success story, especially given the criticism that accompanied higher education ever since. Um, and here obviously we should like, to, or I would like to go back to kind of theory of society, to theories of knowledge society, and see how we can embed theoretically higher education in society, uh, taking into account also kind of more recent technological and economic uh, circumstances. Uh, second theoretical perspective is, um, oh yeah, and just one, one point, uh, we, can, we will certainly see also here strong unintended consequences. For example, in Germany, but also in other systems, um, the growth of higher education, what does the growth of higher education uh, mean for, for, for the vocational training system? There are several uh, countries, like Germany or Switzerland or Poland, which have a strong vocational system, the vocational system is getting increasingly under attack. If you take, if you take the um, kind of recent economic figures, systems or countries with a strong vocational systems are doing relatively well. Take Switzerland, they have the kind of least number of high education enrollment, but a strong vocational system, and so high education does not necessarily lead, let's say, to societal or economic uh, uh, development. So, we will see certainly unintended consequences. Then, uh, we should also uh, focus on how to model these self, uh, to these unintended consequences. Uh, I would just mention that we can here draw upon knowledge from the natural sciences. I would very much like to do that more strongly if I had more time. Uh, for example, there's a recent book by Paget and Powell Uh, who draw on biochemistry and draw on the concept of autocatalytic reactions. And I think uh, they have wonderful material, historical and sociological material, uh, in order to show that with the concept of autocatalysis, you can model these kind of self-reinforcing processes, which I explained, for example, with the example of the Excellence Initiative. Comparative perspective, just briefly, obviously more international comparisons. And I think if you go at the kind of concrete national level, you see a lot of path dependencies, national traditions, contextualizations, uh, uh, which have to be taken into account when we talk about transnational or global trends. And the very last point for a comparative perspective which I find interesting, when I thought about my material, I thought it is interesting that uh, I, I went through these three missions, but where we could actually the strongest changes was The research missions and maybe because the academic profession was involved in these changes. Maybe because the academic profession itself was strongly involved in these changes, while the changes which are analyzed at the teaching level and at the third mission level, uh, the profession was not that strongly involved and I think that is also an interesting point for comparative perspectives. Thank you.
1: Georg, um, you mentioned in your presentation the German Excellence Initiative and I think everybody here would agree that you've just given us a fine example of German excellence with your extremely engaging presentation of the evolution of universities as managed organizations and the fascinating analysis of the consequences of that. We have 10 minutes for questions. I, I can't actually see very
2: well. Yeah, no, to be no, nor do I. I <laughs> might, <laughs> might go over there because I, yeah, I don't we see it. We any. have
0: roving mics and we have a question over there with Rob has a mic and we'll try and take more than one at once. So if there's another question on this side of the room at the moment. We can perhaps have the lights uh, so, so there's two in the, the front. Yep. Um, Yolo, is it possible to take the house lights up a bit? I can't see very well, I'm sorry. Yep. Okay. Nor do I. Um, Franco in the front with... Uh, Okay, thank you. Got thank
3: questions? you very much. Uh, I'm Iris John from University of Edinburgh, and thank you very much for a very interesting presentation. And my question is: uh, I'm very fascinated about your analysis about intended, cons- unintended consequences. And uh, I got a couple of questions in relation to that. Uh, could, first could, could, of all, could we just have one, one question, please? Just one question. But I'll keep it very short.
2: First I, 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 Excuse me, I'll be here for the whole conference, for all coffee breaks, whatever. We can also talk. Uh, <laughs> A, right. Right. one-to-one later. Yeah,
3: it's about the, the, in, the point about when you said about the disciplinary elite, uh, the, the status quo, and, uh, and also about the competitions between the um, institutions, whether to what extent you think that actually is unintended, uh, uh, mm. but actually is uh, intended. And it also seems that the empowerment at institutional level seems to be depowering uh, the power, the you know, the um, performance at in- individual level, and how do you think about that? Thank you.
1: Thank you. And the next question was
3: down
0: in the front.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much for a great talk. Um, I want you to talk. Please say about who you are. Uh, sorry, um, Rajni Naidu, School of Management, University of Bath. Thank you. Thank you for an excellent talk. I want to talk to you about the rise of the new professional administrators and the way in which they. Change the power relations between the professoriate and administration Mm. and you rightly made the case that in Germany this hasn't changed decision making and therefore it hasn't changed the power relations that Mm. much. But I think in the case of the UK what is very interesting is it's true that decision making has not been changed but in changing processes Mm. and structures Mm. and bringing in different types of criteria they change academic autonomy Mm. and academic discretion. Thank you. And the third questioner was?
0: No, I think take these two. We've just
1: taken these two. Yeah, just take these two, Georg,
2: please. Yeah. Okay. Well, many thanks. Uh, just briefly uh, on this first set of questions. Um, when I talked about unintended consequences, I did not talk about competition. I talked about the unintended consequence, and uh, you might see that in the slides, that maybe uh, kind of creative uh, first-class research uh, will not be achieved through a strong focus on academic uh, elite and a kind of ever more growth of research units. Because uh, that was the kind of main goal of the Excellence Initiative, we would like to promote first-class innovative creative research. And here, might, uh, here was my point that maybe through uh, the way it is carried out, uh, uh, perhaps not always innovative and creative research uh, comes out of it. Uh, The empowerment, yes, I would agree that the organizational empowerment uh, uh, leads uh, to a kind of, uh, let's say, loss of power at the individual level, especially at the level of the professoriate. I think uh, you're right. Though it is certainly not a zero-sum game that you can say uh, more power for the organization means less power for the individual, but certainly it is a very interesting uh, um, facet of um, of my presentation which uh, uh, certainly also deserves more uh, academic scrutiny and this goes to the um, uh, second question. Yes, I deliberately put uh, 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 put in here some, some examples from Germany in order to open up this kind of comparative perspective and I would really love to engage more also with uh, researchers from the UK. I'm embedded in several research networks uh, and uh, But I would still, because I have done so much work on the rise of the new professional management in Germany, I would still like to work even closer on these issues from a kind of comparative perspective. And again, I would say there are two comparative perspectives. One is the kind of international comparative perspective, but also the second one is how strongly is the professoriate, uh, um, is the academic community involved? Because, at least from my findings, uh, it is relatively clear that uh, a strong involvement of the academic community makes these changes much more easily and much more radical.
1: Thank okay. you very much Georg. I think we've got time for two more quick questions. I have one down at the front. What, the lady, at the, lady at the back there with blonde hair. Sorry, did you say someone here? Yeah, okay. the, okay. No, it's all in the University of I'm, I'm sorry, we, the, we, the microphone we, isn't working. Is, Can
0: We, we need to hold it very close please.
3: Is that better?
4: No.
0: Franco, shall we take Jürgen's? No, we'll, give, we'll take Jürgen's question, if that's all right. Yeah, good idea. If you would say who you are.
4: Yes, <laughs> of course. So thanks a lot, Georg, for a very rich and fascinating presentation. I would l- like to ask you about, you said, the rise of the CEO type of management in modern societies is due to system dynamics and complexity. Mm. The, and so you would expect you know, that the rise of partly comparable developments, that is the rise of the university as an organisation, strategic actorhood, and the rise of management would be due to system dynamics and complexities mm. as well. Of course, as you know, the alternative hypothesis would be this is just myth of rationality mm. in the rise of modernity. Yes. that the principle of organizing things, of creating formal organizations, of leadership and management is kind of spreading step by step mm. from one societal sector to the other. Mm. And my question is not so much to answer that question perhaps, but would you have ideas how we could study this?
0: Mm.
4: How we could study this empirically, you know? what the drivers of these developments might be um, that would then probably also contribute to our insight into the comparative perspectives and differences between and within countries. I find that a very fascinating (laughs) issue. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Can we take the second question now before Georg answers? Gurley Zorkal the University of Canberra. I have a very specific question for clarification. In the study you referred to about um, showing that research productivity and creativity goes down with larger research units compared to smaller research units. I would like to know what does large and small mean (laughs) in numbers and also I'm not completely sure when you refer to research units whether you mean academic research teams or whether you're referring to research service units? Hmm. Georg, well, I'm not sure you'll have time to answer both of Jeliz's questions but as quickly as you can for Jorgen and Jeliz, thank you.
2: Okay, um, I starting with the letter, I, I was focusing on research which was focusing on academic teams and there's research on these academic teams by Hollingsworth and by Heinze which shows that Typically, smaller teams are more productive in academia, in academic research than larger teams. It's interesting because they showed it with regard to the natural sciences and, uh, and, and fields at the interface of natural sciences and engineering. For, for people in the humanities, it might be obvious that we have a kind of a, a loss of creativity if we work together with 15 others. Uh, instead of uh, being alone uh, in our library. But it's interesting that they showed these research results with regard to the natural sciences. Uh, There is no kind of uh, threshold value where you can say, after this number, it goes down. But uh, in general, the the correlation is not linear. So the correlation between, let's say, productivity and size is not linear and uh, it is, uh, yeah. Uh, Coming to uh, Jürgen's question, yeah, I found it most fascinating. I usually have a perspective in which I, uh, in which I rather um, concentrate on what you mentioned. I usually have a perspective in which I rather focus on, let's say, the external drivers of the managementization of higher education. And therefore, I found it most fascinating to go to, uh, through the management literature, the industrial management literature, and which shows that there were kind of also internal drivers, internal logics, involved in that, and I, I fully agree with you. It would be most fascinating to bring both perspectives together, both, let's say, the internal drivers but also, let's say, the external drivers, the roles of fashions, the roles of international organizations, the roles of models which, which spread from, from other sectors, the business sector, and so on, and so on. Yeah.
1: Thank you very much. much. And thank you very much for those excellent questions. Would you join me once more for thanking Georg Kruken for an excellent keynote presentation?
0: Well, thank you for those excellent questions. And as Georg has said, he is with us throughout the conference and will be tonight
4: at the drinks reception. And I know he'd be very happy for you to approach him.